We're in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And I titled today's message, Appetites, because really life is about appetites. Things that are good, things that are bad. Things that are healthy, things that are unhealthy. And we have the choice throughout life to, to feed an appetite, to nourish an appetite, or to, de- to deny an appetite. And it makes a big difference. This is what James writes, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says he jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us? Amen. I I forgot to mention, too, that uh, Phil Kingsley spoke last week. Our missionary from Ireland did a phenomenal job. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, he spoke on our passage last week, and uh, it's it's on the website online. So if you see him, you might drop him an email and just share with him. Lola's son, Francis's son. Good guy. Good friend. I read a story this week about a young rabbi who had a serious problem in his new congregation. During the Friday service, half of the congregation stood for the prayers and half remained seated. And each side shouted at the other, insisting that theirs was the true tradition. Nothing the rabbi said or did helped solve the impasse. Finally, in desperation, the young rabbi sought out the synagogue's 99-year-old founder. He met the old rabbi in a nursing home and poured out his troubles. So tell me, he pleaded, was it the tradition for the congregation to stand during the prayers? No, answered the old rabbi. Ah, responded the young man. Then it was the tradition to sit during the prayers. No, answered the old rabbi. Well, the young rabbi responded, what we have is complete chaos. Half the people stand and shout at the other as they sit and scream back. Ah, said the old rabbi, that was the tradition. (laughs) (laughs) James really boils down the source of conflict to what I call unfulfilled desires. Every single one of us has desires and yearnings and longings and, and cravings, as I said earlier, some good, some bad, some healthy, some very destructive. And Oftentimes, we, we kind of nurse those desires. We kind of nurse them, meditate on them, contemplate them. And sooner or later, those things come out to the surface in the form of action. And James is talking about how potentially harmful those things can be. Many commentators believe that as he starts chapter 4, he's, he's really talking about a new topic, but I believe that he's really continuing the discussion that he began at the end of chapter 3 in verses 13 to 18 when he's talking about wisdom. And not just wisdom in general, but specific wisdom, the kind of wisdom that bears fruit and that results in order and peace in the church. 
Back in chapter 1, James had said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the, the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And so James has, has appealed to us to ask for wisdom in, in those challenges in life, and, and for the things that we believe that we need. And I, I, I feel like the question before us today is, the question that our passage poses is, will you and I choose to live for ourselves and to gratify our own desires and our own passions and our own cravings, or will we choose to submit to God and to obey Him? And in so doing, trusting that He's got us, that He knows our needs, He knows our desires, and he sovereignly and, and uh, divinely will grant those as he sees fit. That's really the issue. James warns us that if we go down the path of pleasure, it will most definitely mark our life with strife and division and hatred. And, but the choice is ours. And so point number one on the outline, I believe that the source of conflict that James is revealing for us is unfulfilled desires. The source of conflict is unfulfilled desires. Verse 1, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Peter writes something similar in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires because they wage war on your soul. But we, we, we don't appreciate enough that although we were created with free choice and we can make whatever decision we want in this life, if we choose the path of sinful pleasures or of gratifying the flesh, there's always a price to be paid. And the price that is paid is that those things wage war with our inner spirit because God indwells us as our maker. And they are so contrary to his desire and his plan for us. Sinful desires wage an all-out war against us. James warned us back in chapter 1 that each one is tempted when they are carried away and enticed by their own lust. And that when lust is conceived, it, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived or tricked as to where that path leads. The world would tell us that we can enjoy that and that there's not a price to be paid. That, you know, we can, we can turn it on and turn it off. But Scripture says that's an appetite. And if you feed it after a while, it will roar like a lion. It will take control of your life and you will not have ownership of your life anymore. Here in verse 2, he says, you lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious, and you can't obtain things, so you fight and quarrel. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, we saw class wars going on between the rich and the poor. The rich got all the attention while the poor were ignored. The rich were honored while the poor were disgraced. He gave the example of the rich person who enters church dressed in fine clothes and wearing a lot of gold jewelry, and the leaders of the church say, oh, here, you sit up here in front in this great seat, and they say to the poor person, you sit in the back, you know, on the floor. 
you know, because they're catering to the person with money and to the person with affluence. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, we'll find out that he's going to talk about employment wars, again, between the rich and the poor, where the rich have the power to control and hurt the poor people, to withhold their, their wages or to pay them unjust wages, not what they're worth. In our passage today, again, he's arguing that frustrated desires, unfulfilled desires, are really the, the cause of intense strife in this first century church. In verse 2, he, he says, you know, and so you kill or you murder. And, and many theologians have, have, you know, asked, did they literally, did it come to a point where they were killing each other because it just got out of control? And, and I would be in the camp that would say probably not because I think James would have devoted more attention to it if that were the case rather than just a verse or two. But, but James is really talking about what we call a, a hypothetical eventuality. That he's saying, if you continue down this road, do not be deceived as to where it leads. If you continue to have envy and jealousy and malice and hatred and division, and that goes unchecked and you don't allow God's spirit to bring grace and to bring healing, you'll kill each other after a while. You will literally physically attack each other. And so don't be, don't be deceived as to where that road leads. Even today, I think it's fair to say that every crime in this world finds its origin in the human heart. The Bible says that the, the human heart is wicked, desperately evil. Who can understand it? And as I said earlier, each one of us has desires and cravings, and if we, if we nourish those and contemplate those and think about those long enough, sooner or later it comes out in action. At first, it's only a feeling in the heart, but after being contemplated and nourished long enough, it results in, in action. Verbal arguments, domestic violence, even national conflict can really be traced back to the lust that each one of us has, lust for things that we don't have, coveting and envying what rightfully belongs to another, um, whether it's their position or their possessions. I read a really powerful quote this week by C.S. Lewis. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, uh, the, the part of you that chooses into something a little bit different than what it was before. And, and taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing within you either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is a, a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and even with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness and horror and idiocy, and rage, and impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. None of us is neutral. We're not, none of us is idling. Each one of us is either engaged in choices that lead us to conformity with Jesus Christ and to being transformed into His image, 
or each of us is making choices that, that have very destructive, hurtful consequences. There really is no middle ground, and we need to understand that. Well, point number two, I believe that the reason for an answered prayer in a word is squandering, and I'll, I'll define that in a moment. The reason for an answered prayer is squandering. He says at the end of verse two and in verse three, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That word for spend is the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son who very disrespectfully went to his dad before his father had even passed away, obviously, that's the only way he could go to him, and asked for his inheritance, which in the Middle East and in that culture especially was highly disrespectful. And basically was sending a message, you're as good as dead to me, just give me what's mine and I'll be on my way, I'll be out of your hair. And then the text says that he went and spent it, spent it and squandered it on, on foolish living, on, on sinful lusts and pleasures. And that's really what James is saying here. The reason why your prayers aren't answered is because you ask with the end goal of, of having God be the genie in the bottle that just gives you what you want so that you can indulge your flesh and you can pursue the cravings of your heart, whether good or bad. And he said it's impossible for God to answer those. Because the true purpose of prayer is, as Christ modeled for us in the Gospels, is not my will, but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's the point of prayer. And when we pursue a life that's dominated by pleasure, what we're really saying to God is, my desires be satisfied. My will be done. Never mind yours, but you know, you be the power source that makes my dreams and ambitions and goals come true. And we can't pray right until we remove self from the center of our life and we replace that with God. We have to remove self. That's why scripture talks about dying to self. There is a literal death that takes place. I remember many Good Fridays ago, uh, I preached a sermon called, Have You Ever Died? You know, and the point was, you don't begin new life in Christ until you've died to self. You can't go on, you know, pretending to have died and, and experience new life. Paul says very clearly in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's like the best illustration I have. It's like you need an organ transplant. And so you go and you have the surgery and they miraculously save your life. And how ludicrous it would be to leave the hospital or leave that operating table and say, thank you so much for saving me, that, but I, I really don't need this anymore. I'm good now. I can do without this heart or without this kidney or this liver or whatever it is. It would be foolish to think that you had any quality of life apart from that life-saving organ. And the same is true that we can't really experience the new life of Christ until we have died to self. So we need to remove self from the center. That, that word pleasure that we see throughout the passage is from the Greek word hedonai. And it's where we get our English word hedonism. The dictionary describes hedonism as a passion for self-gratification, for pleasure or position, 
at any cost. That's the part that gets me, at any cost. It's amazing what the mindset on the flesh will do. Paul says in Romans 8 that the mindset on the flesh is, is not able to please God. It's impossible for it to do so because it leads to death rather than life. And, you know, you hear story after story of people that chase after their cravings and their ambitions and their goals only to find out that when they have them, they're, they're just completely disillusioned and unsatisfied. I, I talked to someone years ago that had, that had finally become a millionaire. And they said, you know, no one ever talks about what happens when the dog catches the car. You know, the whole life the dog is chasing after the car. But what happens when the dog catches up to the car? You know, what happens when you're climbing the corporate ladder, not caring who you step on or who you, you know, insult or manipulate or abuse because, you know, society has taught us that we're number one and we got to go for it. No one else is going to look out for us if we don't. And so you climb the corporate ladder only to get to the top and find out that the ladder is leaning on, on the wrong building. This isn't where you anticipated being. It's not what you really wanted. And you don't find that out until you've ruined relationships. You've burned bridges. You've destroyed your life. That's why Jesus said in the Gospels, what does it profit a man to inherit the world and lose his own soul? What does it profit a woman to gain everything she thought she ever wanted only to find out that she's, she's become a non-entity, doesn't even understand herself anymore? And so James is saying, as Jesus said in the Gospels, ask and it will be given to you. But... When Jesus said this, clearly he was teaching us to ask with his will and his kingdom and his purposes in mind, not that we might spend it on our own flesh. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, you know, the, the root issue here is trust. It's really about trust. Either I believe that as we sing, you're a good, good father, that's who you are, it's who you are. Either I really believe that or I don't. You know, many of us as kids growing up were afraid to give our lives wholeheartedly to the Lord because we were convinced that if we did that, he'd make us a missionary in Africa in some jungle, you know, and that's not what we wanted to do. That, that didn't accomplish the goal of becoming a professional sports person or, you know, all the things that we maybe dreamed of. But the mentality was, if I really give myself to God, he's, he's going to do something that I just hate. And, and what, how contrary that is with a picture of a loving father. The, the trust issue is that God knows my needs better than I do. That God can fulfill me so much better than I can on my own, chasing after things that I think will promise and deliver, which never do. And so the ultimate issue here is trust. And as I thought about it, you know, it's not that God wants to deny us of pleasure. Most things, and again, I qualify that, most things in life are not bad in and of themselves. They're just healthy if they're in the right context and with the right boundaries, you know? There's so many things that if, if we go outside of the boundaries and outside of the proper context, they become destructive, you know? Sex outside of marriage, you know, we raise our kids to, oh, sex is horrible and evil and bad. And then kids get involved sexually and they're like, wow, this is amazing. But they don't know 
the absolute heartache and hurt that comes with the separation. Scripture says the two become one flesh, not just physically, but spiritually. And there is just untold pain when lives part and, and when they were intended to spend you know, all of this earthly life together and so many other things like that that are not bad in and of themselves, but they have to be enjoyed within the right context and the right boundaries and trusting that God knows that and he wants to give us the desires of our heart. I love that passage in the Gospels where Jesus talks about all the things that the Gentiles, the, the unbelievers chase after. And you fully expect him to go on to say, and, and those are bad and evil and sinful and horrible. But he doesn't. He says instead, and your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It's a, it's a matter of priority. It's do you trust me that I will give you at the proper time and the right time exactly what you need, that you don't have to claw for it, you don't have to manipulate for it. Brittany was sharing with me this week that years ago, um, she remembers a, a nugget from the Beth Moore study on James, when the quote went something like this, anything that we have to fight and manipulate to get is rarely ours to keep. Anything that we have to fight and manipulate to get is rarely ours to keep. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you just, you, you got it and you justified it and you rationalized it? And maybe you said, you know, I was really seeking the Lord's will. And, you know, it's just like, if we want something bad enough, we, we twist circumstances, we manipulate people, we make something happen, and then we act like, yeah, I really, I waited on the Lord. And, you know, and, and we know in our heart, no, I really don't think he wanted that. For, I just made that happen. And if, if you've ever been there, and we all have with one thing or another, with a, a possession or a person, there's no joy in that. There's absolutely no joy. Because we know in our heart that we, we twisted situations and people, and it wasn't God's will. We just made it happen. And we sugarcoated it with the spiritual language. That's what James is saying. To trust the Lord that he knows best. The last thing that I see in our passage is the choice before us. And it's very simple. The choice is God or the world. And you say, well, can I have both? Well, listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. And how hard that is because we live in the world. And every one of us kind of wants to enjoy our experience here while we're here. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a fine line between enjoying your experience while you're here and adopting the mindset and the values and the priorities of this culture. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, don't, don't be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't buy into the world's value system. Don't listen to what it promises you because it's, it's lies. And, and that's really been Satan's tactic since the garden. Satan takes a bit of the truth and he perverts it, twists it. And that's why scripture says he's an angel of light. He, if we saw him for the, the horrendous evil and wickedness that he is, we would resist him in a heartbeat. But he comes speaking so sweetly, 
and so appealingly. And he speaks right to our felt need. And oftentimes we, we, we take the, the bait. In verse 4, after all of the times in James' letter that he has called his readers brothers or my dear brothers, he opens with, you adulterous people. It seems so abrupt and harsh, like, they're saying, where did that come from? Like, how long has he been wanting to say that? He just kind of lets them have it. And it represents one of the most strongly worded rebukes to repent that you'll find anywhere in all of the New Testament. And James is really building upon the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets frequently compared the relationship between Yahweh God and his people as a marriage relationship. Isaiah 54 is representative. Isaiah the prophet writes, For your maker is your husband. The Lord God Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And he is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says, says your God. God continues his covenant language in Jeremiah 3 where he accuses his people of adultery. He says, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And then the pinnacle, the climax comes in the book of Hosea where God asks the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. Talk about being unequally yoked. <laughs> you know, and, and there, I, I take the Bible literally. I don't just believe there's stories that teach us moral lessons. I believe Jonah really was swallowed by the whale and that Hosea really did marry a prostitute. And the whole point of that relationship was to illustrate God's relationship with his people. You're to go and marry this prostitute. You're to redeem her from her, her sinful, unfulfilled life and to make her your own and have children with her. And Hosea did that only to find that in the marriage, she left him and went back to her old life. And God said again, go, pursue her, woo her back, forgive her, show her grace. And this was the most poignant, powerful object lesson for all of Israel, that that's exactly what you're doing to me, your, your Lord and your God. You're whoring after other gods, other idols. You're drinking from wells that are broken, that have no water, when I am the source of living water, and you've rejected me. It's just the most powerful object lesson. Jesus draws upon the same marital imagery in the Gospels when he's speaking about the covenant relationship that God desires with his people, when he labels those who reject him as this adulterous generation. Like God came to earth, took on human flesh, took up residence right in your midst, and you rejected him. You adulterous generation. You, know, you were created to be in relationship with your maker, to be fully satisfied by God. And you've, you've gone chasing after other things and other people. And so James' message to his readers is that by seeking friendship with the world, they're committing spiritual adultery. They're making a choice to choose the world and its values and its system over and above God. In verse 5, James reveals why this flirtation is such a serious matter by reminding us of God's marital jealousy. And you say, well, isn't it wrong for someone to be jealous? Well, I think there's a real significant difference between envy and jealousy. 
Envy is really desiring things that don't rightfully belong to you. Jealousy can have a, a, uh, a righteous, indignant component where you're desiring things that rightly belong to you. If your spouse goes out and cheats on you, there's, there's a proper jealousy because that's just not meant to, to happen. If your kids get, get manipulated and hurt by others, you know, there, there's this jealousy because they belong to you. They're your flesh and blood. And James talks about this jealousy because God with this marital jealousy rightfully demands total and unreserved, unwavering allegiance with the people with whom he joins himself. He says, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you. So be faithful to me. Don't run off. In the book of Exodus chapter 34, listen to what God says. He says, you shall not worship any other God. Why? For the Lord, your God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The message of Scripture is God says, I'm not going to share you with anyone else. Before you come to God, you're really free to do whatever you want. But once you come to God, Scripture says, you are not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Paul says in that same passage in Corinthians, do you not know that when you go and unite yourself with a prostitute, you have taken God into that? Because God now indwells you, and you don't do that kind of compartmentalized and alone. You take Him with you. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3. He says, for I am jealous for you. You really see a shepherd's heart here. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Folks, don't allow yourself to be led away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. I want to draw some application as we close. I was trying to think about some, some simple things that I could say to bring this together. And I was reminded this week of a story that Andy Stanley tells about when he does marriage counseling. And he says, invariably, when he counsels, couple, counsels couples, one of the members of that relationship or partner is invariably not there. And it's usually the one that really needs to be there. And so he's ending up talking to the wife who really wants to save the marriage of the relationship or the girlfriend or the boyfriend and, and, and just saying, you know, I really wish you were both here because it takes both. You both have contributed to this bad, toxic relationship. And so for the person that's there, he draws a circle and he said, this circle represents a pie. And this pie is your relationship, your marriage, your whatever. And both of you have contributed to the state that it's now in. And, and since your spouse or since your partner is not here, could you just draw whatever portion of the pie that you think is your responsibility? Since you all have made choices, both of you have made choices, let's just focus on your part today since you're here. And he said invariably they will draw a very small portion. But then having drawn that, he says, okay, so let's talk about what you've done, choices you've made to contribute to the, the state of unhealthiness that the relationship is in right now. And he said, invariably, they will go and continue to talk about that person that's not there. Well, they did this and they did that, and I can't believe. And they won't focus on their own ownership. 
And I think what, what James is saying to us today is we need to take ownership that every single one of us has unfulfilled desires and needs and cravings in our life. And there's only one person who can satisfy that. And, and we resist that. Some of us really live under the delusion that um, someday our spouse will completely satisfy us and fulfill us, or our, our friends, or, or our family. And they may be an incredible blessing to us, but what an unfair weight and burden to place upon anybody, because there's only one who can ever fully fulfill you in all of those desires, and that's the Lord. And he wants us to understand that. The sooner that we do, the better that we will be. Next week, we're going to get into the answer. But if you look ahead briefly to verses 6 through 10, and you just look at some of the action verbs that he's going to call us to next week as we look at this, he says, submit therefore to God, draw near to God, humble yourselves. Verse 6, he says, God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. And I had never seen these admonitions, these commands within the context of a relationship or marriage. It's not just about, you know, humbling myself or submitting and obeying God, but it's if I want to be drawn away from desires and cravings that are unhealthy, the answer for me is to get closer to God, to yield myself into deeper dependency upon him, to humble myself to throw myself at his mercy and ask him to just draw me close to his side and to ask that he can be all the things that I can't achieve on my own. That's the answer. It's really like a vow renewal. For those of you that are Christians, it's renewing your vows with the Lord, recommitting your life and saying, you know, I've played around too long. I've tried to have my cake and eat it too. I'm giving you everything now. I'm, I'm all in. For those of you that have never received Christ into your life and begun a relationship with God, it starts with that. There's no way to have the power to overcome sinful desires and cravings apart from the Holy Spirit. We struggle with it even with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's where it begins. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for reminding us today that all of us want things some good, some bad, some healthy, some unhealthy. And ultimately, you want to be our fulfillment. You want us to realize that if we pick door number three over door one or door two, that you are behind that door and everything that we ever dreamed of or wanted is found in you. And we either believe that or we don't. Some of us go through life testing that, trying that. But the day that we finally resolve that that's true is the day that we surrender in complete abandon and trust you to fulfill us and meet our needs. And God, we thank you for this tough passage of Scripture today, which isn't really fun to, to read because it brings conviction. It challenges us in our wicked ways. But God, may each one of us find once again that you are everything that we ever hoped for and wanted. And that you are a good, good father who loves us, who only desires to give us good gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.